Well, turn in your Bibles to Psalm number one. Together, Psalm number one. I suspect that for some of you at least, you probably don't need the text itself in front of you. That text is in your heart. For some of you who grew up in Christian homes, this was probably one of the first passages that you ever memorized. Even if you didn't grow up in that Christian home, this beginning of the Psalms is such a well-known, such a beautiful psalm that has so much truth, it's difficult to focus in any one direction. But I'd like to try, as much as we can tonight, to dive into one particular truth contained in this famous psalm. The entire picture of this psalm is really around a set of contrasts. The contrast, on the one hand, is between the righteous man and the wicked man. The contrast that is drawn out is between a righteous man who has the stability, who has the productivity of a tree, a fruit tree. And the contrast is with a wicked man who has no fruit. His, he is like, Psalm 1 says, chaff. The wind drives it away. Now, chaff, as you know, being the leftover of a wheat crop or, say, of a barley crop, you would have, in the context of wheat, you would have the kernel that would be crushed or released away from the byproducts or the rest of the plant, and that plant would just be blown away. In agricultural society, you would have known fully what chaff was. You have a rooted tree, on the one hand, in contrast to absolute dry nothingness. And that contrast came to mind uh, for me, or I suppose perhaps the other way around as I was reflecting on this, when I was in my yard uh, this last week and I was looking at one of our apple trees. Now, our apple trees, we have one apple tree that only produces fruit every other year. It is a biennial fruit producer, and apparently that is at least a a fairly common mechanism of fruit trees, especially apple trees. Some apples only produce fruit every other year. And this is on our kind of bigger apple tree, right in the center of our yard. And last year it just had a magnificent product of apples. And this year it has none. Only leaves, nothing but leaves. Well, we have a second tree that we planted when we came into the house, so about eight years ago. And it's still a smaller tree. It probably is not much taller than maybe seven feet tall. Its, its, root, or its, its, um, its trunk I could probably fit around with one hand, certainly with two hands. It's not a very big tree. And yet it had also a great deal of fruit last year. And, and I was wondering a little bit, is it going to produce fruit every year or every other year. And this year, it's full of apples again. Tons of apples for this, for this very small, fairly young tree. And it was especially unique to me, interesting uh, to me this year, as I looked at this tree, with all these juvenile apples, but still young and growing apples on this tree, to look around it. And I talked about this last week a little bit. If you have a yard 
in Minnesota this summer, unless you have been faithfully watering it, it's probably got some very yellow spots, some very brown spots. In, in our front yard, it's the same. You've got this dry, brittle, cracked grass. In fact, if you were to look across our driveway, there's a hill separating our neighbor's yard from, from our driveway, and it's just baked by the sun. I mean, just brown, almost completely dead. And here you've got on one hand this dry, brittle, cracked grass that's worth nothing, provides no comfort, provides no greenery of any kind. And on the other hand, you've got this tree, even a young tree, an immature tree, a juvenile tree, that is just overflowing with apples and green leaves. And again, we talked about this with our picture last week. What's the difference? The difference is that that tree, though young and immature, has access to resources that grass, with its comparatively small root system, does not have. It's getting down deep. And because it's getting down and tapping into resources, the resources of water, that the grass is not, it is maintaining its fruit even where the grass dries and becomes brittle. Now you can probably see here the picture. The picture of this righteous man Blessed, blessed he is called. Blessed is the man who has access to these resources, who has roots that access what other people do not. In fact, this word blessed is very likely a kind of exclamation. It's not just describing something about him. It's exclaiming something like, Oh, how blessed. Like you were looking at this person and saying, wow, how blessed. And actually the word blessed there is the idea of happy. How unbelievably blessed. How unbelievably fortunate. Those who know Hebrew say that that word blessed is actually in plural. It, it's like you would say, oh, the blessings of this kind of man. Just like you would look at this fruit tree in my yard and compare it to the grass all around and say, oh, the blessings of this fruit tree. And that's what I want to do tonight for just a little bit of our time together. I'd like us to look at our lives and assess for ourselves what kind of resources we have access to on the basis of what kinds of root system we have in to those resources. The title of our message tonight is Blessed from the Roots. Blessed from the Roots. And the simple point that I want to drive home this evening is that the blessing in your spiritual life and my spiritual life will come to what resources you are tapping into by the roots that you have laid down into God's word. And we're going to look at this blessing in three different ways. First of all, we're going to look at the, the, what this man rejects or the rejection that makes up this man's, this blessed man's life. Secondly, we're going to look at the resources that he taps into. And third, we'll look at the root system that makes this possible. First of all, the rejection 
that is at the core of his life. Will you look with me at verse number one of Psalm chapter one? Notice that it begins with something this man doesn't do. It doesn't start with what he does do. It starts with a contrast. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Let me just make this one comment. Whenever we are in a wicked age, an age in which sin abounds, like, like we're in today, you and I are going to need to be known for our contrasts. It's not just enough to say what we do. It's going to be required to say what we don't do. We should be marked by what we avoid, by what we reject, because it's all around us. We're saturated in it. It is filling the airwaves all around us. We consciously need to avoid, consciously need to reject what we see in the world around us. And notice how this blessed man filters and rejects these particular deceptions. Notice, first of all, he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He deals, first of all, with his counsel, or what I might say, is his analysis, is his thinking. He is not influenced, if you will, by the words that are being spoken around him by ungodly people. Now, again, it is, it is very important that Scripture starts, first of all, with the thinking. You're going to see a progression here in what this blessed man does and what he does not do. His thinking. I've talked about this before, but it is absolutely so critical that Scripture begins with seeking to change the way you think, and then it deals with changing the way you act. If you do not change the way you think, you will not change the way you act. That's why Scripture tells us that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be conformed into the mold that the world is trying to press you in. Instead, to resist that, to reject being formed into the world's mold, what do you have to do? Be transformed. How are you transformed? By the renewing of your mind. It starts up here. It starts with the way you think. And this is what this blessed man rejects. He rejects walking in a kind of embracing of the way the world thinks. But notice how it progresses. Nor stands in the way of sinners. An interesting thing. So this man not only does not walk a kind of temporary involvement in, now he does not stand more permanently in the way of sinners, in the path of sinners. Notice that we've shifted from analysis, or how we think, to action, what we do. Again, just what we said. You begin with a thought. You sow a thought. You reap an action. You sow an action. You reap a habit. You sow a habit. You reap, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. Where does it start? It starts with a thought. 
And so this man, knowing the danger of wrong thinking, of the wrong kind of counsel from the wrong kind of people, having resisted walking in that counsel, now he is, he is resisting standing more permanently in the wrong kind of action, in the wrong kind of conduct. This is something that is so critical for us. It is so critical for us, particularly given that we all are people with feet of clay. That is to say, we all are people of weakness, of fleshly weakness. And it is to say this, friends, beware the besetting sin that has you standing permanently in it. Never stop fighting your sin patterns. Never stop fighting your fleshly weaknesses. Never stop. It is when we stop. It is when we stand in the way of sinners. Oh, friends, all of us, all of us who are people of weakness, who are people of flesh, if we say that we have no sin or if we say that we do not sin, we lie. But nonetheless, when we accept the confession that is in and the forgiveness that is in Christ, we are encouraged not to stand in that way of sinners. But notice where we progress next. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Do you see how it's gotten more permanent? For one, you were walking. You were walking in counsel. And then you stand in the way, in the path of sinners, even more permanent. And now you sit, even more permanent yet. But now where are you sitting? In the seat of the scornful, or as you might say it today, scoffers. Again, do you notice the progression that this man is rejecting? He's, he's rejecting it starting first in the mind, in your analysis, that then hardens into a course of action in your life. You stand in the way of sinners. That then further congeals in what? Your attitudes. A one who is hardened, who is a scoffer, who is a mocker. Let me say this to you, young people. My own children, others' children who are here, beware. It's going to start with where you think. And don't be surprised when you give yourselves over to a wrong pattern of thinking that it becomes a wrong course of conduct that then ultimately hardens into the character that is resistant to anything that the truth provides. This man, this blessed man, is the one who rejects the world's analysis, who rejects the world's actions, who then rejects the world's hardened attitudes to truth. But what I want us to see about this man is that why does he do this? Well, notice what verse 2 tells us. Don't, you have to see the connection here. But, here's the contrast. You could be walking in the counsel of the ungodly. You could be standing in the way of sinners. You could be sitting in the seat of the scornful, except, but, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. What is keeping this man from this progression, from analysis to action to attitude? It's the word of God that's protecting him. It's the word of God that's causing him to reject the false thinking of the world, the false actions of the world, and ultimately the kind of character and attitudes of the world. That is, the word of God is creating that effect in him. I heard one pastor say, in essence, that 
the, the, the test of sanctification in your life is the way that you can agree with this verse. Listen to this verse from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Is that a hard verse for you to accept? I esteem all your precepts, all your commands concerning all things to be right. What does that mean? It means that your thinking has been perfectly shaped to align with God's word. You don't fight with it at all. God, I'm, I'm not so sure about that one. I don't know if I love that one. That's, that's a really hard kind of precept. The, the godly man just says, whatever you say about it, God, I esteem it to be right. It's right by me. And notice what he then says. And I hate every false way. You see, not only has your intellect been shaped by the word of God, I, I esteem whatever you say about everything to be right. And then it affects your attitudes to hate whatever is not right. Oh, that's a pretty good thing, isn't it? That's a pretty good challenge, a pretty good test for our lives. How do I think about God's revealed moral principles in that way? Does it stir my affections, my attitudes to hate every false way, even the ones that I am tempted to fall into? This man is grounded in the word of God. It is shaping the way he thinks. It is shaping the way he acts. It is shaping his attitudes and affections. And that's why he is resisting the analysis of the world, the actions of the world, the attitudes of the world. Friends, what about us if we were just to stop the message right here and ask how we do under that test? Are we blessed like that? Oh, how happy that Christian at Straight Gate Church tonight who is so affected by the word of God that they are enabled to resist all the currents coming against us in every different way. One preacher said, a dead fish goes with the current, a live fish swims against it. How are we enabled to swim against the current of the world today? By being affected by the word of God. So notice, first of all, the rejection that this blessed man experiences in his life. It is caused by the word of God, by how he, he, how he engages with that word. But notice, secondly, what I'm going to call the resources that this blessed man is engaging with, that he is accessing. Will you notice with me in verse number three? And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, I just want to bring out one word for us to meditate on together tonight, and it's the word stability. Stability. Now, what does that word stability mean? Well, one way we think about the word stability is that you don't tip over. You're grounded. Now, notice something about this tree's stability. It is planted. It's planted. It's not likely to, to blow over, to blow away. This is a contrast to that wicked man. We know he is like the chaff which the wind 
drives away. The tree is planted, the chaff is driving away. That's the picture, that's the contrast. So he is stable. He is stable in the ground. But notice also what his stability is. His stability is in his fruitfulness. Notice what this verse says. That brings forth his fruit. Now notice the next words. In his season. Do you know something about stable people? They're predictable. Stable people are predictable. That is to say, they show up when they're supposed to. They are reliable in the ways you expect them to be reliable. There's a stability of this person, not just that he's planted and, if you will, immune to outside influences. His inside influences, what is coming out of him, is reliable. It's predictable. His fruit is there when you expect it to be there. I walk out into my yard, and I see a fruit tree, and I see apples on it in July, and I say, there it is. The fruit is there when we expect it. This blessed man is reliable. His stability is in a predictable kind of fruit. But notice also what verse 3 says. His leaf also shall not wither. Now, what does that have to do with stability? Well, why would his leaf wither? His leaf might wither when it's dry outside. When his leaf is being scorched by heat, like we've experienced over the last several weeks, outside forces might act on that tree so that no longer is he bringing forth fruit, his leaf begins to wither. But the Bible here says the picture is that his leaf will not wither. Now, how would his leaf not wither? Well, go look at my apple tree. Why isn't my apple tree withering when my grass is withering? Because, like I said already, it's tapped into resources that is not accessible to the grass. The grass can't get there. The grass is only concerned, it can only access what is at a very, very high level of topsoil. And if it's dry for a period of time, and that topsoil is not wet, the grass is dry. But what about a tree? A tree goes deep into the ground. Its resources are not only tapped in to what is most easily accessible or what is what what we might say immediate circumstances now stop there for just a minute what effect do your immediate circumstances have on you what effect do my immediate circumstances have on me that tells us whether we have the stability of someone whose roots are tapped in to deep resources or you might think about it different this way if my mood is easily swayed by whatever has most happened or what has immediately happened that day, am I a very stable person in the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You see, I might just end up looking like the grass. Are my circumstances immediately in the last hour or two, are they good? Well, then I'm good. Are they dry? Are they barren? Is the sun shining down way too hot for my liking? Well, then I'm dry. I'm barren. I'm like the chaff, which the wind drives away. You see here how wonderful this picture is? This man does not, is not concerned about the immediate 
context that he's facing. The immediate circumstances or tribulations or persecutions or trials that he's going through because his resources are tapped in way deeper than what the immediate circumstances might suggest. He is stable. When we get that idea, when we understand that, we understand things like Jesus saying, when you are persecuted for my namesake, rejoice and be exceeding glad. You say, Jesus, how could I rejoice? I'm miserable right now. Only if you're looking at the topsoil, the dry topsoil. But if your roots are down deep, you know exactly why Jesus says rejoice. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Whoa, whoa. My resources that I'm tapping into are eternal ones. Not this, the last day or week or month or year. What do we tap into? What are our resources that we are relying on for our fruit spiritually? Again, and I could come with example of example of this from the word of God. The ways in which our immediate circumstances do not need to affect the joy that we have in our faith, the hope that we have in our Christian life, the peace that we radiate toward others, the love that we serve others with even when we are suffering. This only comes from tapping into resources that your neighbors who are unbelievers can't access, that your work colleagues cannot dip into. They cannot. You, if you are in Christ, can. And that's what explains the Christian's fruit. So these resources are stable. But then notice one other thing. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I want to be very clear about this for just one moment. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You know, there is a great tendency in our Christian lives and in our Christian circumstances, even in 21st century America, to always try to tap into a notion of prosperity that is not, frankly, consistent with the kingdom of God. We've seen this even in, in, in places where I grew up and I listened to teaching said that, that seemed to present the Christian life as something like a check mark. If you check the boxes on doing these things, then you're going to get these results. We've heard things said that might be similar. You just need to homeschool your kids or you just need to send them to a Christian school or you just need to avoid this kind of educational model or you just need to avoid this... And then, and then families check the boxes and it doesn't work out like they, 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 they were led to believe and they feel betrayed. I checked all the boxes. What was the problem? There's no boxes to check. And now don't, don't get me wrong. There are principles we should try to glean from God's word and apply them to the way we live. And yet we can have this idea of a, of a prosperity that says, if I only do this, then I'll get this. You know, friends, you want to know prosperity? that is rooted in God's word. We looked at it last week. Stephen was a fruitful man. And how does his, end, his life end up? With martyrdom, a painful, cruel death. Did Stephen prosper in whatever he did? You better believe it. Did it prosper in the way that 21st century America might think is prosperity? Absolutely not. His life was marked by service for those deal, and dealing with conflict in the widow's population um, in, in the Christian community. His job was, 
was ultimately speaking the truth to those who rejected him and ultimately accused him and blasphemed uh, or uh, sent false witnesses against him and killed him. Is that prosperity? Well, for the kingdom of God it is. He was a man of incredible fruitfulness. Look at the Apostle Paul, one of the most gifted probably men and intellectuals who ever lived. A man who had deep reservoir of God's word, whose roots were down deep into the resources of God's truth. Did, he, did his life prosper in whatever he did? Well, in that spiritual sense, yes. Did it look like that from an earthly sense? Well, read through his biography to the Corinthians about how many times he was beaten, how many times he was shipwrecked, what he went without day after day after day. Is that 21st century American prosperity? Absolutely not. So I agree with this. When your roots are down deep into the resources of God's word, you will prosper in whatever you do. But will it look like 21st century American prosperity? Very likely not. We should just be careful. Always be on with our, with our antenna up to those who try to suggest that if we just simply check certain boxes, we're going to live the American dream, if you'll excuse the phrase. When God's word has a completely different idea, ultimately, of what true spiritual prosperity is. So we see this man is stable. We see this man is successful, again, in a biblical idea of what that means. But why? Why? Well, notice the key phrase that explains it all. And he shall be like a tree. What's the next phrase? What's the next phrase, folks? Planted by the rivers of water. What explains him having green leaves in a season of drought and not withering? The rivers of water. What explains him being stable? He's got a root system that's supported by the water. What explains his ultimate fruitfulness? The resources that he's drawing from the water. It is the water that explains his fruitfulness. That's the resource. And of course, the picture here again ties back into God's word. What is the river of water? It is God's law that he delights in, that he meditates in day and night. Now, let me just pause for just one moment. What does the psalmist mean when he says that he delights in the law of the Lord? Does he only mean the five first books of the Bible? Let me suggest, I think what he's driving at here is he's driving at the moral instruction of God. In other words, he's driving at the teaching of God communicated in the Word. He is aligning his mind with God's mind. And let me give you an example. I know none of you speed or go faster than the speed limit at, at any given time. But just hypothetically, if one of you were to do that, you know very well the difference between, between following the speed limit when you're worried about a speed trap being up ahead. Uh-oh, the police love to sit up there. I'm going to go back to the speed limit. And between so embracing the speed limit as a method and a mode of safety that you're just programmed to follow it. We all know that difference. Whoops, you hit the brake. I see a police car ahead. And 
I always drive like this because I am communicating something about my embrace of this standard. And in the same way, this person who delights in the moral instruction of God is the one who is not simply doing what is right or what appears to be right out of kind of a, uh-oh, God might be watching now, I better do it, or, uh-oh, I want to prosper, so I'm going to line up with God now. No. It's the person who has embraced the teaching of God, who has taken out of the word what God expects from him and used that as the moral compass that he has to think and to act and ultimately to feel. I think that's the idea that the psalmist is getting at. And this moral instruction of God is his resource that enables him to be stable and successful in his life. So first of all, we see what this man rejects. His rejection is of a worldly way of thinking and acting and feeling. And the resources that he has tapped into are the word of God that enable him to be stable and successful in his spiritual life. And finally, I want to look more specifically at his roots. The roots of this blessed man. And to do so tonight, I want to talk a little bit about biology. As I was thinking about this concept of roots and the resources that they draw in, I had a thought, how do roots work? How do roots take in water? How, how, do, how do the roots bring in the nourishment that a plant needs? And do you know it's actually very interesting? There are a couple things that are very interesting about it to me. The first is the process by which roots draw in water. And you can research this for your own and tell me whether I'm right or close to right. But here's the way that, re that roots draw in water. They draw it in through the process called osmosis. Now, you probably know the, os uh, the principle of osmosis. No, I'm not talking about putting your math book under your pillow at night and hoping that it comes in that way. That doesn't work. But I can tell you about another product process of osmosis. It is the process by which simply one fluid comes in to something else, into some other kind of object. Here's how osmosis works in a root system. The roots go down, and they actually go down into, wa into soil that has water content. It is water logged to varying degrees, of course. And that root actually puts out this fine root hair. And that root hair is low water concentration. It's not waterlogged. It's closer to dry. The soil is wet. So what happens? The process of osmosis moves the high water concentration of the soil into the plant root hair that has low water concentration, and now the plant has water. It's very simple. If you were to take a sponge and you were to put it into your sink, into a, a, a sink that's full of water, the low water concentration of the sponge would then bring water into it. Osmosis, the sponge is full of water. Same idea. The plant root literally draws in water from the moisture of the soil around it. It's another question entirely. I don't fully understand it. You need at least a couple other processes to get the water all the way up to the leaves. 
Some of you maybe can study that out and let me know about that. But just think about that for just a minute. The root draws in the resources that it needs from the soil around it. Now think about this. How are you going to get the resources that you need to be fruitful and stable in your spiritual life? Osmosis. In other words, the water needs to get in. You can't just sit in water. It's going to do you no good unless the water moves into you. And now you understand what it is to bring the word of God into you. What does this man do? Will you notice with me in verse 2? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Literally, that word delight has the meaning of pleasure. His pleasure is in the law, in the moral instruction, the word of God, and in his law, in that instruction, doth he meditate day and night. I love this. Do you know what that word meditate means in the Hebrew? It li- I kid you not. It literally means to mutter. In his law, he mutters day and night. It has the idea of speaking. And here's the picture of it. Here's why it would mean meditate in this concept. Have you ever seen someone walking around and talking to themselves? Like, yeah, we've probably all seen them downtown, right? But I'm talking about my family can, can identify with this. I literally pace around the house talking to myself when I'm preparing for a message. I came by it honestly. You should have seen my dad. He would seriously just be sitting there and I'd see him like his mouth moving and he was forming out sentences in his mind. Um, Same way, I, I mutter to myself, what am I doing? What are you doing when you talk to yourself? You're thinking. That's the idea. You're, you're talking to yourself. You're, you're, you're muttering to yourself. You're processing to yourself. That's the idea of meditating on God's word. Eastern mysticism, what people call meditation today, is nothing of the kind in the biblical sense. Eastern mysticism, you empty your mind. You don't think any thoughts. You clear your head. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is literally the exact opposite. It's not emptying your head. It's filling your head. It's bringing the resource from God's word in to your soul so that you are processing it. You are thinking about it and you're thinking about it so actively it's like you're talking to yourself. Now I say that simply to just make this one note. Sometimes we, we only process meditating God's word on God, meditating on God's word with memorizing it. Friends, it is good to memorize God's word. It is a wonderful discipline, and it enables your meditation in important ways. But do not think that you have to memorize something to meditate on it. You meditate on God's word when you open it in the morning, and you read it, and you think about it, and you talk to yourself about it, and you say things like, why did he say that? He could have said something else, but he said that. Why? Wait a second. Wait a second, self. I don't understand how verse 1 matches up with verse 2. That connection is not clear to me. Let's think about it for a little bit. You meditate on God's word. 
And this blessed man meditates on God's word day and night. Why does he do it day and night at all times when he can? Because he has pleasure in it. He delights in it. My dad used to say so helpfully, where does your mind go when it's at neutral? When the car is in neutral, where does your mind rev on? What do you think about? This man has pleasure in God's word, in the moral instruction of God's word. He has, he has shaped his thinking and his actions and his feelings to God's word, and therefore his mind goes there, and he talks to himself about it. Do you know this is a wonderful thing when we're in a bad mood? Psalm 42. What is the psalmist in Psalm 42? He starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God. You know, sometimes some of us need to mutter to ourselves when we're in a bad word, in a bad mood. We need to meditate on God's word. Hope in God. I need to remind myself who God is, what he's promised to me this week, what he said to me that I can tap into right now and experience his joy and his peace. What is it? It's meditating on God's word. It's taking the resource from the soil, from the high concentration of water in this word, and by osmosis, bringing it in to the root system of my life. And I pause here just to ask you, how often do you think about God's word? I didn't ask how often you read God's word. Reading God's word can be nothing more than sticking a piece of wire or something into a, into a bucket of water and wondering when the osmosis is going to happen. And it doesn't happen at all. Why? Because the osmosis doesn't happen unless that water is received into the plant. It is wonderful to read God's word. It is wonderful to memorize God's word. But what ultimately is the central part is whether that word gets inside you whether you think about it, whether you meditate it, as we talked about tonight, receive, receive with meekness the engrafted word. How are we doing in thinking about God's word, in meditating on God's word? I told you there are two things about biology that were very fascinating to me as I investigated how roots take in water. Do you know what the second one is? It's something called hydrotropism. Hydro, H-Y-D-R-O, tropism, T-R-O-P-I-S-M. You want to know what hydrotropism is? Tropism is the way by which a plant moves towards something. Have you ever put a plant in a room, in indoors, and where does the plant inevitably grow toward? The window. You'll see that thing snaking halfway across the room, trying to get to where the sun is. That's tropism. So what do you think hydrotropism is? Water. Water. Do you know that roots underground move toward water? Do you know that literally a plant can detect where the water resource is and it actually grows toward the water just like above the ground the roots or the, the, the branches grow toward the sun. And that root system keeps on sending out its system in pockets of water, and conversely, it doesn't grow, keep on growing, into pockets where it's dry. It's seeking out the resource that maintains it alive. Now think about how that applies to your life and mine. Think about a world today, friends, in which you can go to Netflix 
and watch shows for literally the remainder of your earthly existence and not, and, and not get through them all. I mean, literally, I, I haven't calculated it out myself, but if you look at Amazon Prime and Netflix and Disney and all these other entertainment channels, you could probably entertain yourself for the rest of your life. And so many people are coming home and their roots, even Christians, are sending their roots in the investment of their time and resources into things that are entirely dry. Oh, there, there may be something that's not wrong in those shows. There may be something that doesn't defile their conscience or lead them astray. But let's be honest, for most intents and purposes, it, 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 many of those shows are, are, are just about completely dry. And, and compare that to the resources that we have in God's Word and the resources that we have in the Word being taught and the Word being preached and all the resources that we have to dig our roots into something good and stable that will increase our spiritual capacity, that will make us more fruitful, that will make us more grounded. And the question we should ask, be asking ourselves tonight is what kind of hydrotropism am I showing? Where am I intentionally sending my roots so that osmosis will bring in the life-giving resource that will make me stable and successful in the kingdom of God. My challenge to you is not simply to say, cut off everything because I told you to. My encouragement to you is, let's walk by faith. Let's try to find the most fruitful avenues, the most fruitful patches of ground, the most word-saturated places so that our roots can sink in and receive the moisture that God has for us. I want to close tonight with the example of a man named George Mueller. Many of you know George Mueller as a prayer warrior, a man who experienced great miraculous answers to prayer in running in orphanage in Great Britain in the, in the 1800s. But George Mueller has a wonderful, wonderful teaching and an example of his own experience when it comes to engaging with the Word of God and putting your roots into it. Listen to what he says his experience was that he didn't hear taught around him. This was something that the Lord taught him and brought him great blessing. He says, the first thing I did, this is in the morning when, when he got into his time with God, after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious Word, was to begin to meditate on the Word of God. So George Mueller did, was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse to get blessing out of it. Talk about someone putting his roots out. Not for the sake of the public ministry of the word, not for preaching, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated on, upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a very few minutes, my soul has been led to confession, or to thanksgiving, or to intercession, or to supplication, making prayer requests, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, that is to say, he didn't kneel down and just start praying. He opened the word and began meditating on it. But he instead to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. When thus I have been for a while making confession or intercession or supplication or have given thanks, I go on to the next words or verse 
turning all as I go on into prayer for myself or others as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul is the object of my meditation. He's bringing in resources from the roots. Now listen to this. The result of this is that there is always a good deal of confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and intercession mingled with my meditation, and that my inner man almost invariably is even sensibly nourished and strengthened, and that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. Wow. That's the example. Now listen to this. He says, since God has taught me this point, it is as plain to me as anything that the first thing the child of God has to do morning by morning is to obtain food for his inner man. He said, we should take food for that as everyone must allow. Now, what is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. And here again, not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. Friends, the blessed man is the one who is blessed from his roots. The one whose roots have gone in to the resources that allow him to be stable and fruitful and successful in his spiritual life. My encouragement to you as my challenge to myself is this. Let's stick our roots into the resources of God's word this week.